Jordan. Oh, you can take a trip. You can take a. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. It is uh, really exciting to be here this morning. It always, always a blessing to get to speak at the nine or eight and ten. Um, I hope everybody's having a great festive season. Right for the festive season, I got a shave and I've got plenty of compliments. So thank you very much. It's been fantastic. <laughs> um, But I'm excited about this morning because um, our theme, Simply Christmas, was a theme that allowed us to preach on whatever God was doing on our heart as long as it had a Christmas theme tie-in. So my Christmas theme tie-in is going to come in right at the end, and it's going to be a great one. Um, But you always run this risk when preaching what's on your heart and what God God is doing on your heart in this season of your life, um, because sometimes people have gone through that Already, they've discovered what you've been discovering, and you expose yourself and just show really to everybody where you are at in your journey with the Lord. Um, when I shared with somebody what I was going to be preaching on this morning, they were like, and not just one person, a couple of people, they're like, are you only really getting that now, right? Like 13 years down the line, and uh, you're only discovering this now as a Christian. Um, and to which I replied, yes, and it's been a great discovery. Um, if you're in that place, I hope that this will bless you. But if you're not in the place uh, where this is something that you know, hopefully it will bless you even more. I've entitled the sermon, um, Recreating a Gospel Culture, right? Um, now, being, being a youth pastor, I've, um, I've had this annoying frustration. Um, and it's not just with our church and with our teenagers. It's a global phenomenon where young people are coming to the Lord. They're making decisions for the Lord left, right, and center, right? But the follow-through and the carry-through and the perseverance is not there. And so I've been struggling with this thing for a long time and wondering what it is. And then started to ask myself this question, you know, what, like, what is youth ministry all about? What are we doing? What are we doing as a church? What is the gospel? What, is, what are we preaching when we preach the gospel? Because surely that transforms lives and we're preaching it properly and people are accepting the gospel for what it is. They should remain steadfast to Jesus. Um, and so I asked the question, essentially it came down to this, what is the gospel? And... Um, It seems a little bit silly, I think, sometimes to ask that, especially in a Christian context, because for all of our differences, right, for all of our varied opinions and um, different views on things, which we have many, right, this would be the one thing that you would think we've got right, that we've got what the gospel is down, and that we're pretty much all in agreement on what the gospel is. And in fact, most Christians who've journeyed with the Lord for some time would be confident in being able to articulate to somebody what the gospel is. All right? And it's basically John 3.16. Right? You know the gospel if you've been around for some time. The gospel, the word gospel means good news. And the good news is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Right, that's the gospel summed up. In fact, you know it so well, you could probably draw me a picture, and the picture would look like this, right? And it would be, mankind has sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Since penalty is death, we see that in Hebrews and Romans, and you, you fall down the chasm if it wasn't for the cross. But God sent Jesus, and you walk across Jesus, and once you go across Jesus, you get to the other side. We've got to receive Christ through faith, and that's by grace, and then we're assured of our salvation. And that's it, right? That's the gospel summed up. You may be shocked this morning, and just please don't throw any stones. Let me finish the message, all right? You may be shocked this morning as much as I was when I suggest to you that I don't think that that's the gospel, at least not in its entirety, right? And I think that's part of the problem when it comes to the teenagers I'm seeing come to know faith or come to know Jesus and then leave the faith. 
I believe that contemporary Christianity has defined the gospel by using the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is how I get saved, how I enter the kingdom. But it is not in and of itself the gospel, right? It is good news, but it's not the gospel as according to the apostolic preachers in the New Testament. And we'll see that just now. I do believe that salvation is inherent in the gospel. Salvation flows out of the gospel, but personal salvation is not the gospel itself. Right? This is what a guy by the name of Dallas Willard had to say concerning this issue. He said, for most Christians, the gospel is all about getting my sins forgiven so that I can go to heaven when I die. So in other words, the gospel has become the gospel of sin management. That's what he says. And as a result, I think contemporary Christianity has hijacked this word gospel and made it what we believe about personal salvation. This has led to something really concerning. It's led to what the gospel really is, becoming a bit more of a backstory, if anything else, right? Leading up to the cross. And what it does is it makes Jesus purely a mechanism by which I get saved. So our understanding of the gospel, our, our core of the gospel, just makes Jesus a mechanism for salvation. And the backstory leading up to the cross is just that. It's just a backstory. It's just, you know, what's the Old Testament really got to do with anything? Essentially, the cross becomes the only part of the story that really matters in our contemporary definition as Christians of what the gospel really is. I must admit, when God started to work this through in my heart and started to challenge me with this, first with my mind, then with my heart, I was a little bit skeptical and a little bit nervous because as soon as you start to discover new things, it's like, well, am I being a heretic right now? Are people going to question my salvation if I start to question this? But as I began to pray and read Scripture and listen to sermons and read books, of which I've done a lot, I became more and more convinced that the writers of the New Testament, when they spoke about the gospel, had something completely different in mind to what we have when we speak about the gospel, generally speaking. And I don't think their understanding of the gospel was justification by faith at the center. So I want to, I want to root this in Scripture for you so it's not just me rambling and sharing, you, sharing with you my heart. And I want to go to one of the primary texts in the New Testament to help us to understand what Paul and the apostolic preachers of the uh, biblical days actually understood to be the gospel. And that's in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to go there quickly. And just a bit of history about this text, right? Here, scholars, most scholars agree, right, that Paul here is reciting oral tradition and he is preaching the gospel, right? They agree that what Paul is speaking to the Corinthians is something that he inherited via oral tradition and he's retelling it to them. And what he's doing is he's preaching a gospel sermon. In other words, here he defines what he understood to be the gospel. This is what he says. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Paul receives what the gospel is. And remember, he's had a Damascus Road experience. He could have said the gospel is this wonderful, life-transforming, salvation-at-the-center story. 
right? I was blind, but then I could see, scales fell from my eyes. He could have recounted that, but essentially what he starts to do is he starts to retell them a widely held view of what the gospel was, and it was a story that he received, and now he starts to hand it back to them as a reminder to them of what the gospel really is. This is what he says the gospel is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. And then to the twelve, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as Adam in all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he stands over the kingdom of God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that that does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. But when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. That is Paul's summary of what the gospel really is. The plan of salvation, the fact that Christ died for our sins, is part and parcel of what the gospel is. It is not the gospel in and of itself. Before we unpack this, though, and I'll show you that, I just want to draw your attention to these two words, right? According to Scripture. Paul starts his unpacking of the gospel with these two words, according to Scripture, Christ died. Why is that important? Because it shows that Paul's understanding of what the gospel truly is is rooted in the Old Testament. When he says, according to Scripture, he's not speaking about the New Testament because the New Testament was still busy being written. When he says, according to Scripture, he's speaking to the Old Testament. And he says, the gospel that I'm going to preach to you has its roots in the Old Testament. There's a build-up. There's a story. There's a promise. There's a telling. There's prophetic word after prophetic word that leads to this one point. And this point, this thing that is happening according to Scripture is the gospel. That's what it is. And so this is what he says the gospel is. This is what he unpacks for us in a nutshell. He says the gospel is the fact that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus was raised, that he appeared, that God exalted him, he put everything under his feet, and that he was enthroned, he reigns. That's what Paul summarizes as the gospel. In other words, Paul's gospel is an according to scripture telling of the life story of Jesus. It's not just the cross and how we get saved. The gospel is the power-releasing story of Jesus' life, death for sins, resurrection, and installation as king. As I read Paul's summary of the gospel, I realized that the gospel at at its most basic level is not a story about me and my personal salvation. It's not at its center justification by faith. The gospel at its core is the good news about the enthronement of King Jesus. That's at the center of the gospel, the anointed, atoning king. It blew my teenagers' minds when I told them that Jesus Christ was not Jesus' surname. Christ is not his surname. Christ means the anointed one. It's the word for Messiah, the Greek word for Messiah. The anointed one, the promised coming king. Right? The gospel has got Jesus at its center. 
Therefore, to gospel for Paul and the early apostles and the early church was not to run around declaring, my sins are forgiven, my sins are forgiven. For them to gospel was to run around declaring that the king has come. The king has come. That's what it meant for them to run around and to gospel. And to the Jews, they would go, remember the Old Testament. Remember the promises. Remember the prophets. Remember their stories. Remember the prophetic words all built up. Remember God's promise about the coming king, the one who would rescue us. It's happened. It's Jesus. Look at his life. Look at his death. Look at his resurrection. Look at his exaltation. Look at his enthronement. And remember his coming again. That was what it meant for them to gospel. And when they spoke to the Gentiles, it was, hey, let me tell you the story about God and his promise to his people Israel. And you know what's great about that? It's been fulfilled. The promise has been fulfilled. And it's not just for the Israelites. It's for everybody. It has opened up now. And the good news is that it is for everybody Jesus has come. You know what's so exciting about when you declare that, when you declare that the king has come? It's because by implication, it means that the kingdom has come as well. And in the kingdom... There is forgiveness. In the kingdom, there is power. There is love. There is freedom and healing and restoration and resurrection. That's what's awesome about the kingdom. So I just want to be clear on this thing quickly in case you still doubt that I'm a Christian. I believe that salvation flows from the gospel. I believe that the robust salvation of God is the intended results of preaching the gospel. But the gospel is in and of itself not my story of personal salvation, how I get saved. It is about Jesus, his life, his death, resurrection, and exaltation as king. Somebody asked me, why the big fuss? Why do we have to be so pedantic about this? Why do we have to define it like that? My response was, well, I think we've defined it and made it something that it's not. I think we need to let scripture speak for itself. And because when we make personal salvation, the gospel itself, we rip a piece of the fabric out that makes up the gospel, and we end up with this de-storified, abstract, three to four point message on how to get saved. And then the story of the Old Testament and the Israelites fade into the background, and the significance of Jesus being Messiah doesn't make any sense. You can be saved and be a Christian and not need the Old Testament And sometimes the way we preach the gospel, be Christian and be saved without even needing the Bible. In most cases. What we end up with is a culture obsessed with preaching a message on how to get saved. We preach on heaven and hell and come up with all sorts of evangelism strategies in the hopes of attracting or even scaring people into making a decision to accept Christ into their hearts. But this is what I see when I read Scripture. Jesus and the apostles were not obsessed with getting people to make decisions. They were obsessed with making disciples. It's not about put up your hand and accept Jesus into your heart. It's acknowledge that he's King and Messiah and follow him. There was a Barna study that um, the Barna Institute did. If you know about the Barna Institute, you'll know that they're quite a reputable um, uh, company or organization that do some really significant studies. And they did a study on Christian homes in the United States. And they looked at um, teenagers and young children who grew up in evangelical Christian homes. 90% of them made a decision to follow Jesus right, at a young age, somewhere in their early childhood or um, teen years. Only 22% of those people who made that decision followed their Christian faith through into 
their late 20s and 30s and showed and, bur- and, and, and bore marks of genuine Christianity. That's a huge fallout. And we think, I think, it's got to do with the way we preach the gospel. We need to stop calling people to make a decision to accept Christ and instead call people to hear the story of Jesus, the Messiah, and to teach them to follow him means to confess him as Lord and King of all, then to surrender and to submit to him and to give him their allegiance. If you know a guy by the name of David Platt, you'll know that these words are significant as he spoke them at a conference he was recently invited to speak at, talking on this issue. This is what David Platt said. Suddenly, contemporary Christianity sales pitches don't seem adequate anymore. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. Invite Jesus to come into your life. Pray this prayer, sign this card, walk down this aisle, and accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. What we've done is we've taken the infinitely glorious Son of God, who endured the infinitely terrible wrath of God, and who now reigns as the infinitely worthy Lord of all, and we've reduced him to a poor, punny Savior who is just begging for us to accept him. Accept him? Do we really think Jesus needs our acceptance? Don't we need him? Jesus is no longer one to be accepted or invited in, but one who is infinitely worthy of our immediate and total surrender. And when I heard that, I was just like, yes, Jesus. This, this is good. This is exactly what the gospel is about. It's about you, not me. This morning, I want to end by rooting what I've been saying in one more scripture and then to leave you with a thought. So let's go to Acts chapter 2, 22 to 39, because let's just pretend Paul didn't know what he was doing, right? Let's go read Peter. Peter is preaching a gospel sermon in the book of Acts to some Jewish people, all right? And this is what he says. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. What he does there is he speaks about Christ's life. He's preaching the gospel here. He's telling them what the gospel is. He starts with the works of Jesus. He goes, this is the beginning of the gospel. Look at Christ's life. You know he existed. He was accredited to you by God. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Christ's death. His life, his death. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. Resurrection. Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Just stop. That's the heart of, of an evangelist. That's the heart of evangelism, to bear witness to Jesus, not to come up with a three- to four-point plan on how to get saved. To be an evangelist is to bear witness to Jesus, which we all are as Christians. Then God exalted Jesus to the right hand of God. There's his exaltation. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's the center of the gospel. That Jesus is Lord and Messiah as he brings to completion the story of Israel. Here, it sounds remarkably similar to Paul's unpacking of the gospel. Peter goes, it's Christ's life, it's his death, it's his resurrection, and it's his exaltation, and it's his rule and reign as king. 
And this is what's amazing. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's the correct response to the gospel, by the way. That's the correct response. And by implication, there's a huge implication. The implication is this, that by telling the story of Jesus, it is anointed to awaken sin in the hearts of people who need to, um, who need to repent and accept him as their savior. Have you ever tried to go up to somebody and tell them off the bat that you're a sinner and you need help? Have you ever tried to tell somebody that they're sinful and their life is broken and they need help? It's often met with some really, really, put it lightly, resistance, right? But when you just tell people a story about a guy and you unpack that story and you tell it properly, just telling the story awakens in people the sense of wonder and awe and a desire to be saved because that story is not just some random story about some random guy. It's a story about the king of the world, the Lord of the heavens and the earth. And as you tell it, it awakens people to their need for him. And then this is what Peter says. Man, what you need to do is repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the plan of salvation. That's how you get into the kingdom. That's part of the gospel, but it is not the gospel itself. There's this analogy. Who knows C.S. Lewis and the story of Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? Narnia. Right. This is the analogy, right? If you've read those books, this is what telling the, the gospel in its entirety is like. This is the analogy. It's like going... Watch Aslan roam in Narnia. Let's begin there. Just look at him. Look how powerful he is. Look how majestic he is. Look how wonderful he is. Oh no, but wait. The enemy have trapped him. They've captured him. They've cornered him. Oh no, they've killed him. He's dead. They've put his body on the stone tablets. It's over. But wait. The stone tablet has cracked. And Aslan has risen and come back to life. Listen to him roar. Wow, that's powerful. That's the gospel. And when you hear that story, I don't know when you read those books. If you read those books, go and read them if you haven't. There's something attractive about Aslan all of a sudden. There's this majestic, there's this, there's this majesty about him, this wonder about him that just draws you into him. And you just want to be around him. That's what happens when we preach the gospel people get enamored and infatuated and intoxicated with Jesus and they get drawn into him and when they're in love with Jesus and the story and they start to ask questions about their sinfulness and their brokenness, we go, hey, Jesus, part of the gospel is that he can fix that. But we start with that. We forget the rest of the story. That's not the gospel. I learned this big word, truncated. That's the truncated gospel. Cut off, cut in half, severed. Ask this question of myself. Why are the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John called the gospel? Is it not perhaps because they are the gospel? Right? We call them the gospels. They weren't called the gospels until after 200 AD. Before they were, they were referred to as the gospel. The gospel as a, according to Matthew. The gospel according to Mark, Luke, and John. Right? Is it not that the gospel in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is the gospel. The story of Christ's birth, life, death, resurrection, exaltation, and reign as king. I believe it is. But I don't know if we preach that gospel to a world that needs to hear about Jesus. There's a scripture in Matthew 26, 10 to 13, which I believe supports 
the fact that the Gospels themselves are the Gospel. They're an extravagant exegesis of the Gospel that we find in 1 Corinthians and 9 Acts. The story is of Jesus and the woman with the alabaster jar of, of, of special ointment. And you know what happens if you don't? What happens is Jesus is reclining around a table and this woman comes and pours this expensive ointment all over his head. And some Scrooges go, oh, there's such a waste of perfume. You could have sold that for a whole year's worth of wages. And Jesus, is, he knows what's happening in their hearts. He's upset with what they had to say. And he says this to them. Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor will always be with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, this is amazing. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told also in memory of her. Does that not suggest to you that Jesus thought that when we preach the gospel, we would tell his life story? And that in his life story, this woman's story would be included? When last did we preach the gospel and tell the story of this woman? Because Jesus was convinced that when the gospel was preached, this woman's story would be preached as well. What we've reduced the gospel to is this. You can be saved, you can go to heaven, and you can be sorted out. Because Jesus is Savior. And I would say that that is true. But that is not all the truth. The gospel or the plan of salvation is framed by the gospel. The gospel is the story of Christ's life, how he brings to completion the promises made in the Old Testament and how he fulfills the promises God made to his people and how he is now king, ruler, and reigner of all, and reigner over all, and he will come back again and bring his people to him. And we will experience what it was always meant to be like before sin entered into the world. We will be co-heirs with Christ, ruling and reigning on the new earth. The gospel is a story of Jesus, not a story about you and I at the center, right? Here's where my Christmas tie-in comes in. When we celebrate Christmas, we don't just celebrate the birth of baby Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild. We celebrate the beginning of the gospel. We celebrate the coming of the king and the fulfillment of the promise God made to his people. That's amazing. It's not just about these presents and about having fun and eating all sorts of meals, with 10 different meats and having a great time with family. It's about celebrating the coming of the gospel. Jesus Christ, our King. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I just want to, want to honor you. I want to lift up your name and declare, Jesus, that it has always been about you. You are at the center. You rule and reign. You are the King of glory. God, where we've made it about ourselves, forgive us. God, where we've been ignorant to what the gospel really is, what is at the core, what is at the heart of the gospel, forgive us and awaken in us a new perspective, a fresh perspective, and a hunger and a thirst for your word and to tell the story of Jesus to people. Lord, so that they may be convinced that you are the King, that you are the Lord, that you are the Messiah, and that you are the atoning King. I pray for your people at Connect. I pray that that would be our mantra, that Jesus is King, that Jesus is King. That that would govern every step we make, every decision we take for the glory of your name. And I pray that because of that message, not just in this season, but through every season of the next coming year, I pray that because of that message, people would come to know you. To your glory. Amen. Amen.